I want to welcome all of our guests as well this morning. So glad you're with us. I want to welcome those who are joining us on live stream. We're glad you are with us as well. I had the chance this past week to travel out to Malibu for a couple of days to speak at Pepperdine. Everyone has a cross to bear, and I have to bear that one every once in a while. You know, there's sometimes I get a speaking engagement, and Casey and I will talk, and we're like, I don't really know. But for some reason, like any time Malibu calls, it just feels like God is saying yes. Uh, I got to hang out with Eric and Sharita Wilson for a couple of days, and usually I go out in Pepperdine at least once a year. But usually I'm preaching to church leaders and adults who are gathering from around the nation who come to a conference. But this time I was there for the students. They asked me to come in for a couple of days and spend time with the student body there. Um, that Pepperdine community over the last six and nine months has been hit pretty hard. There was the, the, the fires that destroyed a lot of that area and students weren't able to go to class for a couple of weeks. And right around that same time, there was a mass shooting not far from the Pepperdine campus, which took the lives of over a dozen people, one being a student there. So they asked me to come and to talk to their students about light and darkness and the process. My book I wrote a few years ago called Reentry and how we navigate darkness. So I had a couple of days to be with students to talk about that, how we move through darkness and into the light. And around that same time, I was getting messages from some of you from a, a tragic car accident that happened that, if, that impacted the Harding community where a young girl who was a friend of some of yours in this room who passed away, I believe it was yesterday morning, and then we hear about the mass shooting that happened in New Zealand. And sometimes it's just, man, you're just surrounded. We're surrounded by darkness and chaos. And how do we navigate all of this? And I'm reminded one thing of what John Mark Hicks said. John Mark Hicks is at Lipscomb University. And he was an interim preacher here before I came. And John Mark Hicks has endured a lot of pain in his life. He's gone through a divorce. He's lost a wife to, to death. He's lost a child. And, and John Mark Hicks once said, if, if I want to grieve, I go to a cemetery. But if I want joy and somewhere where I can cling to hope, I go to church. And so he comes to church, and church should be the place. And no matter what we're going through or what emotion we're experiencing most in our lives, this is where we come to remind each other of the story that we are in. It's why we sing songs together. It's why we take communion. It's why we take time to dive in the Word. It's to remind each other that, that we are living for something that is eternal. And through it all, we're clinging to hope and clinging to joy, wanting to live life to the fullest as, as God intends. I reminded of a story a few years ago of a woman who was baptized in this church where she called me one day and said, hey, you've never met me, but can I come meet with you? And she had never even been to this church. She was a woman who was 25 years old and, and had made a lot of really poor decisions in her life and don't, didn't know God, had never read the Bible. And some of the poor decisions in her life sent her to a hospital where she, she was there over a month having all kinds of surgeries. And it was there that she was broken in body, mind, and spirit. Literally, she broke her neck, broken legs, broken arms. And in that hospital, she had never prayed before. She had never read the Bible. And, and as she was coming in and out of surgeries, and for two weeks, she started to have dreams. And in her dream was Jesus. Jesus speaking truth over her life. Jesus reaching out his hand to her. And she said, so it was there in the hospital after having some of these dreams that she finally picked up a Bible and decided to read it for the first time. And it was one of those Bibles, it was only a New Testament Bible with the Psalms. So she starts in Matthew and not Genesis. 
So she read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and she didn't even know she was reading the four Gospels. She just starts reading the Bible, and she comes in contact with Jesus. So she had her mother who knew about our church, so then she calls me. She comes to my office. She begins sharing these things with me. And then the question in her life was, please tell me, is it true? Like, is Jesus really this good and this inviting? So we were able to talk about Jesus and his willingness to forgive sins and how he brings people into relationship. And I baptized this woman a few years ago. And it's just a reminder for me and for her and for us. We serve a God who is an initiator, a God who is an inviter, a God who offers new life, a God who has defeated death, a God who invites us into a better story. So this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Uh, For the next seven weeks, six weeks leading up to Easter, and then one week after that, I want to journey through the last week of the life of Jesus. And Mark 11 is where the triumphal entry happens. And from Mark 11 through 15, it is all the last few days before Jesus dies on the cross. And then I want to come back after Easter and read Mark 16 as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, just a reminder before we even dive into Mark, last fall we did Mark 1 through 10. I think I took three months to walk you through Mark 1 through 10. And it was a series called Refocus. And something I laid in front of you that very first Sunday is when you read the book of Mark, and some of you love this kind of stuff. In the book of Mark, you have the word now or immediately that shows up over 40 times. And Mark is more interested in what Jesus does than in what Jesus says. You don't have Jesus preaching a lot of long sermons in the gospel of Mark. You have Jesus acting and going from one event to another event. Mark most likely was written somewhere in the mid-60s AD, which is around the time of Emperor Nero. So there wasn't like systematic persecution of the church going on. And what I mean by that is there wasn't an effort by Rome to like wipe out all Christians, but there was some persecution happening. And that if you decided to follow Jesus, it may mean something for you or for someone close to you. And lastly, especially in the book of Mark, more than Matthew, more than Luke, more than John, the path of discipleship is following the suffering Messiah. It's the Messiah who suffers, who lays his life down for people so that people can find life. So in Mark 11... To introduce like the last week of the life of Jesus, there's the, what is called the triumphal entry. Now just take that phrase, triumphal entry. So triumphal is to triumph. It's victory, it's celebration. And entry means there's some kind of entering into something and moving away from something else. So we call it the triumphal entry. And you can read about it in Mark 11, the first few verses. And I don't want to read 1 through 7 right now today. But what happens in that is that Jesus decides to get on a colt. He gets on a donkey. Not a horse, not a chariot, a donkey. Jesus knows. Jesus is going to the cross. And Jesus, time after time, chooses a path of humiliation or humility, of suffering. He takes, the, he takes a path where he's not, he's not coming into, this, into Jerusalem trying to declare himself as the king. He's coming in as the one who is about to suffer. He's on a donkey riding into this town. Now, I don't know about you, but like maybe you grew up in a town where there's, when you enter into the town, there's a special landmark. There's something that lets you know you were there. Some of you may have grown up in smaller towns where this happens. So yesterday I'm driving back with my boys. Uh, I drove them to my parents' place when I flew out to California. And we came over the Memphis Bridge, which is like our entrance for my family for years. Anytime we leave this this state, usually it's going west and then we drive back east. And it's our entrance into the city. 
Now, I grew up, I lived just a few years of my life before I moved to Dallas in a town called Crockett. Crockett was a town of six to 7,000 people. It's called Crockett because they believe that when Davy Crockett went from Tennessee to Texas to fight in the Alamo, that he stopped and he drank from a, he, well, they, it's a water fountain now, but he got a drink and then they name a town after him. Now, in this little town of Crockett, I had two field trips growing up because we didn't have many places to go for field trips. One field trip was the groundbreaking of McDonald's in Crockett, Texas, back when I was in elementary school. Because up until that point, we had like a Golden Corral, we had a Dairy Queen and a Sonic, and that was about it. When McDonald's came, it was big time. They let us out of school to go to the groundbreaking of McDonald's in our little town. Our other field trip is we would walk to this water fountain, and there's a plaque by this water fountain. This is it's kind of funny to me, all right? It says, which this is the campsite of the famous Texan. <laughs> Check that out. <laughs> because... Texan will claim anybody a Texan when they do good things in Texas. That's what we do. A campsite of the famous Texan on his historic journey to the Alamo where he played the, paid the supreme price for Texas liberty. And that's where you go to celebrate it. When you drive into Crockett, if you come from the south, you will go by the place where Davy Crockett stopped to get a drink of water. It's the entrance. Back in October, November, a few of us traveled to Israel. And in the city of Dan, which shows up in your Bible a few times, they just discovered in the last couple of decades the gate of Abraham. And it was fascinating to see. They're still digging around this area. And this was the place where myself and Jeremy Upton and Sue Petrie and Kathy McCoy got lost and separated from the rest of the group. But we ended up there at the gate of Abraham, the entrance into the city of Dan thousands of years ago. And then we also spent just a little time in Jerusalem, a few days in Jerusalem. And this is a picture that was taken on the road that would have been the triumphal entry road. This would have been the journey from Bethany to Jerusalem that Jesus would have taken multiple times. This road, the triumphal entry, comes into Jerusalem. This road goes through the Mount of Olives, through the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is, picture is taken from my phone. But if you're in the Mount of Olives or you're on this road going from Bethany into Jerusalem, you're up on a hill, you come into a valley, and then you come into the city of Jerusalem. It's this panoramic view. And our guide was able to like walk us through this site right here of where crucifixion would have happened, where the different places Jesus would have been. It was a fascinating view. And there we were on this place, this road where Jesus would have traveled. It was a small road. It wasn't a road as wide as like 240 or Sam Cooper. It was a small little road. And as Jesus was traveling down this small little road, riding on a donkey, here's what we read in Mark chapter 11, verse 8 through 10. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while many others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed, now I want to stop just right there, just for a moment. He's riding in on a donkey, and you have this crowd. And, and I think the crowd, they think they know exactly where Jesus is going. And this may not be the case at all, but it, I find it interesting that there's a crowd that is following Jesus and there's a crowd in front of Jesus. And maybe they're in front of him because they're, just, they're there to lay things down so that they're, they're declaring him as a king as he comes in. But maybe they think they know exactly where he's going. He's going into Jerusalem and then he's going straight to the temple and to the mansions to make all things right, to take over the city. But instead, Jesus chooses a different path, right? 
He doesn't take a path where he takes over mansions and palaces. He takes a path where he's going to go to the cross. But as he's coming in on this road, we read that they're shouting things like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're shouting these things. And then you get this verse. And I don't want to skip over this. Look at it, chapter 11, verse 11. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts, looked around at everything, carefully looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, an interesting point. Jesus never sleeps in Jerusalem. So the last week of his life, he doesn't sleep in the city. He always leaves the city and then he goes sleep somewhere else. So it's late in the day and he walks into the temple and he looks around and he leaves. It's like Jesus looks around and sees that there are a lot of things that aren't right. But then Jesus says, we'll talk about this tomorrow. Any of, you ever, any of you ever have parents that did this to you? Like, you know, you break curfew and you come in late, and there's your mom or your dad, your grandparents sitting on a couch, and dad stands up and dad says, Son, I'm glad you're home safe. We're going to talk about this tomorrow. And my response would be, Let's talk about it now. I don't want to wait until tomorrow. No, we'll talk about it tomorrow. I'm like, well, I need to know what's going to happen. Are you going to take my pager away? Because that's what we had back when I was growing up. Are you going to take my beeper? I mean, <laughs> or 411 and 911, you can spell out I love you and all these things on that beeper. Are you going to take my beeper away? Are you going to take my Walkman away? What kind of grounding am I going to get? We'll talk about it tomorrow morning. It's, I, I find this to be so fascinating. Jesus walks in and it's like he's studying what is going on in the temple, which would have been so much chaos it was noisy. Josephus, an historian, tells stories that around 65 AD that there were over 250,000 lambs brought to Jerusalem for the Passover. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Shelby Farms or Overton Square having 250,000 lambs descend upon that place? The noise. But Jesus doesn't deal with anything then. He leaves. And on his way out... He goes, sleeps in Bethany. The next day, here's the story that happens. Look in verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. So seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Does anyone here, just show of hands, does anyone here, do you struggle with this story at all? I mean, I, I, I do. Jesus kills a tree. Like, of all the illustrations he could have used, he could have thought of something else. He took out a fig tree. I mean, I've had the opportunity to read the Bible with people who've never read the Bible before. And there are times that I'm reading the Bible with people who've never read the Bible before, and I come to stories like this, and I try my best just to, like, skip over it. Like, hey, let's just get to the cleansing of the temple, because I can help make sense of that one. And people are like, yeah, but who's this Jesus? Like, why does he take out the fig tree? Like, people aren't going to get fig newtons anymore. Like, why, why the fig tree? I'm just joking, all right? But there, why the fig tree? Why does he take out a fig tree? Now, in the Old Testament, and I think his apostles, I think his disciples would have known this. In the Old Testament, fig trees were often meant for shade, for prospering, for favor. And there are times in the Old Testament where the withering of fig trees stood for the disobedience of people. 
So maybe they would have known that immediately when Jesus speaks this curse over this fig tree. And you read a few verses later in verse 20 and 21, and the next morning, so a day later, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. So it wasn't just the limbs, like from the inside out, this thing had withered away. And this is where Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus goes on to talk about faith. So you have this story of the fig tree, which is told by two gospel writers of Jesus speaking a rebuke and a curse over this tree. And I want you to hold on to that just for a moment because the next story in Mark goes like this in verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them and he said this, which to think Jesus is turning over all these things. And then it says he taught them. Somehow he's teaching in this moment. Or he turns over things and then he's teaching. There's a crowd, they're listening. And Jesus says, is it not, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made, you've made it a den of robbers. Now, I think there are a couple of reasons Jesus is angry. And one, there, are, there were money changers. So sometimes what would happen is like, you're coming from a distance play, distant place, but you have to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So you're coming to Jerusalem, and you don't want to take lambs or your sacrifice from your home. So you come to Jerusalem, and then you can buy your sacrifices there. And if you were selling sacrifices... You could pretty much put any price on them because people need it to atone for their sins. So surely this was happening in some places. But I don't think it's the only reason Jesus is angry. I think Jesus is angry about the location of where this was happening. He's upset that there was a location, and the location where this was happening was a location where people were supposed to be able to go to worship and to pray. This is a part of the temple for people to go worship and pray and connect to God. And now it's so noisy as people are selling things. Have you ever tried to pray in a place where there's this noise going around everywhere, like all around you? I remember uh, a couple of years ago, Casey and I were touring the Vatican. And we got to the Sistine Chapel. Because I've seen movies about the Sistine Chapel. I've heard about it. And I just had this expectation that when I went into the Sistine Chapel... My expectation was that I I didn't think like the voice of God was going to speak directly to my heart. But I did think that once I got in there, there would just, there would be a time of reverence. Like I would be able to sit and to, that we would be able to look at the art and see how God has helped connect people to him through the art. And just have a moment in there. But when we got into the Sistine Church, it was like herding cattle. People were everywhere. It was crowded. And in the loudest thing in the place were people who were working there trying to shush everyone else from whispering. It wasn't reverent at all. And I can just imagine in those times there are people coming from a long ways away and they're coming to connect with God in this one place in the temple and they're not able to do it because people are selling things and there's noise. And it wasn't just a location where people could connect with God. This was the place in the temple where outsiders were able to connect with God. This is where the Gentiles could go in the temple to pray and to connect with God. And now it's become something that's keeping outsiders from connecting. So think about this. Jesus gets mad because the insiders are getting in the way of the outsiders connecting to God. 
right? That outsiders have a place where they can go in the temple to pray and to connect with the heart of God and insiders are getting in the way of the outsiders doing that. How often does this happen in our lives today? Where those of us who are in the family of God, though we're meant to be vessels, sometimes become the obstacles to people from the outside connecting to God. So where's this happening in your life? Like where, where are you more of an obstacle than you are a vessel? And whether it's with our family, our neighbors, how are we an obstacle to our coworkers connecting with God? Because we're meant to be vessels, not roadblocks. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of the triumphal entry. Two of them tell the story of the fig tree. Only Mark connects the two and puts them right by each other. This is a time of high emotion in the life of Jesus. We're, we're going to see Jesus go up on, in the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be very emotional in a prayer time. Jesus knows what it's ahead of him with the cross. There's a lot of emotions. And now here are two stories where there seems to be anger unleashed from the heart of Jesus upon something. When we get angry or what we get angry about sometimes reveals like what it is we value. I know in my own life there have been times where I've been angry at something and I've acted out in anger and then later on I look back and I regret how I express my anger. And there are times where I get angry at something and I express my anger and I will reflect back and I don't regret it. I'm like, man, I think that's something worthy of getting angry at. Does this ever happen for you? Like there are some things where you, ways you get angry and you've had to go back and apologize how you express your anger. And some things you get angry at and you're like, man, I, I think God would be angry at what I just got angry at. And here are a couple of times where Jesus expresses his anger. So here's what I want to do. Just for a moment, I want you to keep the fig tree dying and how Jesus goes in the temple and cleanses the temple. Keep these stories together. Don't separate them. Because what you have is that each one of these appears to be thriving, yet neither is bearing fruit. And both are confronted by Jesus, and he's angry because he knows that they were created for so much more. Yes, in a way, Jesus is using a fig tree as a prop to share something else. But I also want you to remember the, the picture I showed you of Jerusalem, where, where that fig tree would have been. On the other side of the fig tree would have been Jesus' ability and the possibility to look out and to see this panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem, where in Luke 19:41 Jesus wept over the city, most likely from up on that hill. And, and the fig tree dies looking out at Jerusalem in the background. There's a lack of fruit on the tree and there's a lack of fruit in the temple. For Jesus, what he's often concerned about is what fruit are we producing in our lives? And he's looking at Jerusalem thinking after all God has done for the people of God in that city, how could you be fruitless? After all God has done to redeem people, how can we live lives that don't bear any fruit? I've told the story multiple times in this church of of some of our friend Delvin Lane, who was uh, a leader of the Gangster Disciples here in Memphis, a, a large gang who was a great football player to Booker T. Washington back in high school. And as a young, young adult, uh, he was at a place in his life where he's one of the best drug dealers in the city, leading a gang. He had power, he had money, he had women, yet he felt completely empty inside. And Delvin would go on to lead streets ministries for a while and then transition to work for the police department, work for nonprofits. 
But as I've heard Delvin multiple times share his testimony, one thing Delvin says is that at this point where he was so empty, he went to a minister, sat down in his office, expressed some of the the emptiness inside of him. And he said, the first question the preacher asked, the minister asked, the first question he asked was, Delvin, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? And Delvin said, Josh, I've answered that question so many times. I knew the response. I had a moment in time that I could point back to of a conversion experience I had. And usually that's where ministers would just leave it. He said, this minister asked another question. And the follow-up question was, Delvin, if I were to follow you around for one month, what's going to be the fruit I see in your life that Jesus has made a difference in you? And he said, Josh, that was it. That did it. When he started asking about the fruit in my life, here in this story, Jesus is concerned about, about fruit. He's serious that we become something of substance. Jesus believes that we have something to offer. This isn't just in being angry at disobedience. It's because Jesus knows that when God encounters someone and changes their lives and transforms them, that they are made for so much more. And when you know it, when you reach a point in your life with God where you're so confident of who you are in God and you can embrace it and you can celebrate it, you begin living for something better and greater than yourself. So here's the thing with fruit. That the calling of God on all of us, on none of us, is for you to be the greatest piece of fruit the world has ever seen. The call of God is, can you believe tomorrow that there's some kind of fruit God wants to bring from your life? And, and maybe somebody will know it is fruit in that moment, but it may plant a seed in someone that won't produce fruit for 30 more years. It's part of how the kingdom of God goes. Now, Some of you may hear some of these stories or my sermon this morning. And you may think that right now in your life, you're like that fig tree. It's like you've just withered away from the inside out. Or you may feel like your marriage is like that fig tree. Or you may be able to identify someone in your life who is currently so far from God. It's like they are like that fig tree. And the good news in the church today is we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection is we don't interpret the fig tree on that side of the resurrection. We look at the fig tree on this side of the resurrection and what we know on this side of the, re the resurrection is that it's not over for you. If you feel like that victory, even if it may have been like a curse of God that came on you because of disobedience, like it's not over for you. It's not over for your prayer life. It's not over for your spiritual maturity or your, your development. It's not over for your marriage. It's not over for your child who is far from God. It's not, it's not over for you. It's not over for the church. It's not over for your witness. And that where you are fruitless needs to be the place where we ask God to help. Because this isn't about effort. It's about diving into the source. If you want to bear fruit in your life, it's not based on effort. It's making sure we're rooted in the proper place. So there may be some cry of repentance that comes from your life today because you know that you're meant to produce fruit and you don't want to die and someone asks, what was the fruit of their life? And it takes people five minutes just to come up with he was a nice person, right? Like you want something meaningful to come from you. And there may be someone here in your life that you've never confessed Jesus as Lord. You've never been baptized into Christ. And maybe this is the day for you. Or maybe it's the day for you to set a date on your calendar and say, you know what, I need to take seriously what this covenant is, what baptism is, what relationship with God is. And you can fill out a card. You can drop it in the baskets on one of the tables. You can go to one of the prayer leaders around the room to express these desires to know God better. I want to ask for the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go ahead and move around the room. And they're here to be a place for you 
for prayer, for fruit to come from your life, if you're disconnected from God of what it means for you to make a connection, if you've never been baptized, maybe it can put you in contact with someone who can help study with you to show you what that means. If there's something you want to bring in front of our church body today, we have a couple of elders up front who are here to receive you. Before we sing a song, I want to ask for you to stand up and I want to pray before we sing this song. So let's stand together. Can we bow our heads? And if you're willing, will you just open your hands where you are to receive from God today? God, I pray that the truth in these stories will sink deep into us. Maybe they even mess with us a little bit. And as I often pray, God, I just ask today, if I've said anything that doesn't honor who you are, what you desire, your character, your nature, may those words fall to the ground and not be remembered at all, be trampled by you. But if I've spoken anything that is true to who you are, may those words sink deep into our hearts and bear great fruit this week. I pray, God, that the same power that was able to lift Jesus out of a grave will be upon the people in this room to bring them to life in every way imaginable. I pray this in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing a song.